Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. I'm your host, Molly, and I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul, to the real you. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know that. And now, you do. Here on this podcast, there's no finish line, no quick fix or cure, there's no outcome, only eternal unfolding. From chaos comes clarity. Through working with and integrating the concepts we'll explore together, you'll emerge transformed, standing in the ashes of the person you used to be. All right, everyone, welcome back to the podcast. If you're new, welcome. Longtime listeners will know the impact that depth psychology has had in my own recovery journey. And you know how it goes. When you spend all of your time researching and diving into a certain topic, you can forget that some people haven't heard of it before. So that's why I thought it would be a good idea for me to zoom out a bit and break it down so that my listeners have a deeper understanding of this different perspective on the human mind and the way we develop and trauma 
Before I dive into the next part of what we'll be covering, which is the work of one of my very favorite depth psychologists and Jungian analysts, Marion Woodman. So first things first, depth psychology is a field of psychology that delves into the exploration of unconscious processes. So these are processes we're not aware of, things that we do and ways that we behave that are outside of our conscious awareness, those things that you do that you're going, whoa, what came over me? I don't know why I did that. Even I know I said I was gonna stop doing this, but I did it again. These are unconscious processes. Also your hair growing, your breathing is an unconscious process. Although we can make our breathing a conscious process if we bring our conscious awareness to it, your digestion is an unconscious process. And that's easier to understand, but In the world of depth psychology, we also have unconscious processes of coping mechanisms and what Carl Jung referred to as complexes. So depth psychology is this field of psychology that dives into the exploration of unconscious processes and the profound layers of the human psyche. It seeks to understand the deeper, often hidden aspects of the mind that influence behavior and experiences. This approach originated in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries, so this is not very old in the scheme of time. (laughs) Significant contributions to this field and pioneers of depth psychology included figures like Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, and Alfred Adler, or as I like to refer to them, the psychology daddies. Most people are familiar with Freud. And by familiar, I mean they know of the name, they know he's a prominent figure in the world of psychology. But what I realized is that not many people know even the difference between regular therapy, maybe that you'd go to short-term therapy like CBT or something like that, and proper psychoanalysis, where the stereotypical image is, you know, someone laying on a couch and the doctor saying, well, how do you feel about that? It's so much more than that. But psychoanalysis is much deeper and you're not going to be engaging in psychoanalysis for one to two weeks or a few months even. It's a much longer process. Someone might be in psychoanalysis for years, which means that typically underprivileged people, vulnerable people, people who don't have significant financial resources, this type of therapeutic modality is out of reach for them. It's really expensive. And most of these therapists don't take insurance for very good reason. Many of them don't believe in the current system. They don't want to have to diagnose someone. They don't want to have to jump through the hoops that our broken system has set up. And so it's really unfortunate that the everyday person doesn't have access to this form of therapy. I myself can't afford. I would love nothing more than to be in analysis with a Jungian analyst and be able to do that for a few years. I would love it, but I can't afford it. And most people can't. It's it's not very accessible. So Freud came up with this therapeutic modality called psychoanalysis, which emphasized the role that the unconscious plays and the significance of early childhood experiences on how we end up behaving and turning out into into adulthood. 
And Freud's theories really laid the foundations for depth psychology. Carl Jung expanded on Freud's ideas, and he introduced concepts like the collective unconscious, archetypes, and the process of what he called individuation, which is like becoming a whole person. Depth psychology explores the symbolic language of the unconscious, the power of dreams and symbols, acknowledging that our thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are shaped by a lot more than just our conscious awareness. Depth psychology emphasizes the importance of self-discovery on integrating our conscious and unconscious aspects of the psyche for a more holistic understanding of the human experience. When I initially was seeking help for my mental health, I came across mainstream stuff, like different Instagram accounts giving these very basic, overly simplified suggestions. When I would go to the doctor, it was either go on this medication or do therapy for a short period of time. And I remember when I was initially going to therapy, I just thought this isn't doing much for me. It's hard to explain. It wasn't working for me. There are lots of people that maybe short-term therapy might work for, medication might work for, but for me, I just felt this longing for something deeper. Ever since I was young, I had a really, really deep existential, what's the point kind of questions, fear over life and death. I was very fascinated with cultures like ancient Egypt or even just any kind of cultures in antiquity that seemed to revolve their life around things that we couldn't see, the divine life and death. I had a period of time when I was really young where I was really obsessed with mummies and I almost, I scared myself with this obsession because I was too young to really probably be diving into those things. I was obsessed as a little girl about the myth of Isis and Osiris and I know since I was really small, these mythic concepts, these deep existential questions were calling to me. And so it's no surprise that these more standardized blanket forms of therapy, psychiatric diagnostic labels didn't really hit for me. But when I discovered the world of depth psychology and the words of these Jungian analysts who have almost become like spiritual teachers and elders for me, even though many of them are no longer here, their words live on in their books and reading what they've shared, even though much of it is absolutely a product of its time. If you can allow yourself to read these words and absorb them and take them for what they are, take what resonates, leave the rest, it will potentially infuse your life with a deeper sense of meaning. Many of us right now are struggling with what's the point and we're overwhelmed and we don't have any meat and soul left in this world. And I think that the youth of today particularly really senses that, but they don't know where to go for answers. And I recommend going to depth psychology. Deaths of despair from suicide, drug overdose, alcoholism, 
are rising dramatically in the United States right now. These two researchers named Anne Case and Angus Deaton, who've done some in-depth studies on this and are trying to shout out about it, <laughs> the media isn't covering this very much, but the stats are pretty startling, especially after the pandemic. I think we're starting to see this kind of trickle out in the stats. Because if you think about it, if you look back in history, the only other time that suicide rates were as high as they are now were five to six years after the Great Depression. And that's because you'd think, why, why not during the Great Depression? Well, because it takes a few years for these things to kind of trickle out and show up in the graphs, right? And I think that's what we're seeing now, especially with the pandemic. So these two researchers think that the causes of this people literally dying from pain and despair. They tie this crisis to what they describe as, quote, the weakening position of labor, the growing power of corporations, and a rapacious healthcare sector that redistributes working-class wages into the pockets of the wealthy. They're basically saying that it's down to capitalism's excesses. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm not one of those people that thinks capitalism itself is the devil. I don't think that at all. But I do believe that there is balance in everything. And right now we're living in a society that prioritizes profits and productivity and wants everyone to fit neatly in a little box. And if you aren't productive, if you're not helping the little graphs go up, and if you have a problem with that and you break down mentally and physically from the dysfunction of this society, that something's wrong with you. Don't look at the system. Just make the little graphs go up, shut up and be productive. That's the vibe. And get more beautiful and more beautiful. Don't age. Be desirable. Have a job. And then meanwhile, in the background, the average everyday person can barely afford their rent. The average everyday person has no hope of buying a home. People are putting off major decisions like that, like having kids, because they literally can't afford to live. If you're anything like me, I look at the price of groceries sometimes and I'm going, this is insane. I'm watching things go up. Inflation is ridiculous. People will get completely bankrupted by a healthcare bill. It's insane. So no wonder we have, especially the younger generations who some of them, not some of them, all of them had to have their youth completely interrupted to be completely locked down for two years of their life. And then look at the world that they're going to be growing up and going into. Everything is so uncertain. And I think millennials, my generation, are now having to grapple with everything that we were told, everything will be fine. Just go to college, get a job. Like it'll all be good. We're now realizing that we were lied to. And the younger generations like Gen Z and Gen Alpha, they saw it as a lie from the very beginning. And I think millennials were lucky because we had that brief time where we actually believed all of this stuff even though behind the scenes we're getting completely destroyed by tech companies fighting for our attention, stealing our data, and 
growing up in like the extreme filtered world of Instagram, we just have two or three generations, these younger generations that have been fucked up in very specific ways, but it makes perfect sense why we are lacking a sense of meaning. We never grew up having anyone tell us about the big questions, life, death, what does it all mean? We grew up in a world of repressing those things, going completely up into our heads, disconnecting from our bodies. So if you are wondering, quote unquote, what's wrong with me? Well, nothing's wrong with you. There's something wrong with our society and the messages we've been receiving and the things that we're prioritizing. It's all out of whack and our systems, our bodies are acknowledging that and trying to tell us with symptoms and with shutting down and saying, no, this is not how I thrive. There's something wrong with this. So we ignore those signs, we push it away, and we try to force ourselves to get in line and believe what society is telling us, like saying, oh, something must be wrong with you. I mean, this happens all the time. Someone will go through the most traumatic experience possible maybe have three family members die in a car accident, let's say, and you're grieving, you can't work. It's been three months and you're still breaking down in tears. You find yourself going into the doctor's office because you can't work. You're about to get fired. You have to su- support your family, but you're grieving so much. And the doctor says, yeah, I think we should, here's an antidepressant. That's what you get. But you're grieving. It makes sense that you're grieving. And it makes sense that your body is so upset with you because you're trying to force it to be productive and push all this stuff away when your body wants you to grieve, wants you to go through the full grieving process and not repress. But we don't have the luxury to be able to do that because we have to make the graphs go up. It's fucked. It's fucked. So pivoting from it's fucked, (laughs) how can we actually move forward? Because while, yes, it is, it is pretty dire out there right now, that doesn't mean that we as individuals can't take control of our inner narrative and start seeking outside the mainstream for answers because there are an abundance of them in resources if you know where to look. And that's part of why I do my podcast is because I want to share these things that have taken me so much rabbit holing, so much manic research, so much time, and condense them to you. And the most of my audience are younger generation. I have a massive audience, very diverse across the age spectrum, but a lot of my audience is young and wouldn't even know where to look for these things because I sure didn't. It was just a matter of synchronicities and me following the thread that got me here. And one of the most influential people that I've come across in my journey is Marion Woodman. Marion Woodman, she was born in 1928 and she passed away in 2018. She was a Canadian Jungian analyst. So a Jungian analyst being someone who explores the work of Carl Jung and practices psychoanalysis through the lens of his work. So not only was Marion a Jungian analyst, she was an author and a woman's movement figure known for her influential work 
in the field of depth psychology. She was born on August 15, 1928 in London, Ontario. She grew up in a really conservative and religious environment. Her family was very conservative, very religious. Her father was a successful businessman and the family adhered very strictly to traditional values. Her early experiences within this religious and conservative environment, as well as the societal expectations that were placed on women at the time. Think about this. She's growing up in the 30s and 40s. All of this influenced her later interests and work. She spent time as a ballet dancer. She was an incredibly creative person who loved movement. She participated in drama and acting and art and singing. All of the things that you could think of with expressing creativity through the body were things that Marion was really passionate about. So when we're exploring her work, it's important to remember that Marion's early life was marked by societal expectations and restrictions placed on women, which became significant factors in shaping her later interests and her work. That's why it's so important to read about the early lives of the people that you admire. When did they grow up? What kind of messages were they receiving? Because it really helps add depth and nuance when you're exploring their work. So I already mentioned that Marion Woodman was fascinated with ballet. She actually trained as a classical ballet dancer. And these pursuits exposed her to the physical and psychological challenges of the connection between our mind and body. So she was really a pioneer of these ideas because I feel as though only just now are we starting to really accept that our mind, our emotions are connected to our bodies and the symptoms that might arise in our bodies. Marion's dance career faced challenges due to health issues, which led her to a period of deep personal crisis or a dark night of the soul. So these struggles became a catalyst for her journey towards psychological exploration and healing. It's common that people go through this dark night of the soul before they wake up and begin their healing process. And this was certainly the case for me, hence why I find myself really drawn to these figures. So Marion had to step away from her passion, this dance career, because of health issues. And this was her dark night of the soul. Because who am I, right? Everyone can relate to that. Who am I if I can't dance? then who am I? It's been my whole identity. This was a transformative phase in Marion's life. And as a classically trained ballet dancer, she faced intense physical and psychological demands in the pursuit of her career in dance. And it was actually a diagnosis of tuberculosis, which led to the collapse of her dance career. And this period of physical illness and the subsequent derailment of her personal aspirations plunged Marion into this deep existential dark night of the soul. This loss of her identity as a dancer and the physical limitations that came along with this health crisis triggered these deep questions and this crisis was not only about the external challenges, but also this inner struggle to make sense and make meaning of her life, her purpose, her identity beyond being a ballet dancer. 
And it was during this dark and challenging period that Marion turned to psychological exploration as a means of healing and discovery. And her encounter with the works of Carl Jung and Jungian analysis as a whole provided a framework for understanding the symbolic language of her inner world and navigating the depths of her psyche. This pivotal moment set Marion on a path of transformation, which is what led her to become a Jungian analyst herself. This personal journey through the dark night of the soul not only shaped her as a person, but it profoundly influenced her approach to psychological healing and her unique contributions to the field of depth psychology. Her experiences of crisis and healing became integral to her understanding of the mind-body connection, the integration of our unconscious, and the importance of embracing our deeper self on the journey to wholeness. And through her work as an analyst, an author, a teacher, Marion shared this wisdom with others and offered guidance to others who were going through a similar dark existential period of wondering, who am I? What's the point? Especially in these moments of deep personal crisis that all of us can relate to. Marion Woodman also extended beyond traditional Jungian analysis and brought her own unique flavor. She actually expanded the field through bringing in her unique feminine experience, and she had a particular focus on feminine psychology and what made that experience unique from a psychological and spiritual aspect. Her work explored a lot about the mind-body connection, the symbolism in the unconscious, and the integration of body and soul. These were central themes in her writings, as well as of her workshops, which she conducted many, many of. She authored several influential books, including The Pregnant Virgin, Addiction to Perfection, and Dancing in the Flames. Addiction to Perfection is one of my favorite books of all time and also of hers. Throughout her career, she dedicated herself to helping other people, particularly women, navigate the challenges of self-discovery and finding meaning in their lives. And this unique contribution of hers lies in this blending of Jungian psychology with her profound understanding of the body and its movements, emphasizing the importance of embracing the totality of the human experience, not just our intellectual capacity. What I want to dive into is something that I found online. It is an article from Psychological Perspectives, a quarterly journal of Jungian thought, and the author is Daniela F. Seif. This information that we'll be going through is based on a plenary lecture from the conference Coming Home to the Body, The Legacy of Marion Woodman. This conference was in 2015 and it was a collaboration between Pacifica Graduate Institute and fun fact, the founder of Pacifica Graduate Institute, Dr. Steven Eisenstadt, was actually on the podcast talking about his new book, the Imagination Matrix. So that interview is available if you want to go back and listen. I'm also now taking a dream tending course with Dr. Eisenstadt, which you could check out at dreamtending.com if that sounds interesting to you. I mentioned the author's name, Daniela F. Cf. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. But 
it's worth noting the killer credentials behind the woman writing what we're going to be diving into. She's an independent scholar, author, and teacher with a doctorate in biological anthropology from the Oxford University and an active interest in the dynamics of the psyche. She's the author of Understanding and Healing Emotional Trauma, Conversations with Pioneering Clinicians and Researchers, which was published in 2015. She begins by talking about something called a trauma world. She writes, Growing up traumatized means that survival systems are activated in both our minds and bodies. As a result, our lives become rooted in a different biological and physiological reality. I've called this parallel reality a trauma world. At its core are fearfulness, disconnection, and shame. If a trauma world is formed during childhood, it becomes our normality, whereupon we're unconscious of its impact on our lives. However, without consciousness, healing is impossible. Let's pause here to briefly discuss what she just shared. We, and by we, I mean those of us who grew up maybe in dysfunctional family systems, anyone who's experienced consistent little T trauma over a long period of time, maybe you had a really big T trauma occur in your life, whatever that is, she's saying that this creates almost a parallel reality where we are perceiving the world differently than someone who may not have undergone that same trauma. And so therefore, you're living in this trauma world of fear, disconnection, and shame. If you can relate to growing up and kind of looking at people that just seem happy and healthily adjusted, never mind the fact that some people that seem happy and healthily adjusted are masking and repressing, but there are people out there that grew up with what psychology says good enough parents because there is no perfect parent, and people that are relatively securely attached people who have a healthy psyche, they're not developmentally arrested in a massive way. There's no perfect person, but they are someone who maybe you would look at and think it's just not possible for someone to be that happy and well-adjusted. Well, it is, but those of us who are stuck in a trauma world, we just can't even fathom that. It's the same reason why many of us, and I'm speaking just from the female experience, if you constantly didn't give quote unquote nice guys the time of day and you find yourself constantly drawn to abusive relationships because you feel that that's passion, you know, it's because you're stuck in this trauma world, likely dysfunction and anger and explosive emotions. This feels normal to you. And when someone is just nice to you and treats you well, it feels like there must be something wrong. Like when is the other shoe going to drop? Or it's boring. So she goes on to write, Marion Woodman articulated the dynamics of trauma in a visceral and potent way, helping to bring trauma worlds into consciousness. As importantly, together with dance educator Mary Hamilton and voice coach Ann Skinner, Marion Woodman developed body-soul rhythms, an embodied, creative, and integrative approach that can make a powerful contribution to healing. So listen to that, right? Marion Woodman knew that she needed to bring together people who specialized in dance, 
people who specialized in harnessing the voice and Marion Woodman who understood these worlds of consciousness as well as coming from a dancing background and theater background herself. She thought, how can we bring all of this stuff together to create a new mode of healing? We've become increasingly conscious of the destructive impact that trauma has on both mind and body. We've also become increasingly conscious of its impact on families, communities, and the wider society. However, the actual dynamics that constitute trauma remain hidden from consciousness, and unless they are brought into awareness, healing is practically impossible. The first aim of this article is to illuminate the dynamics of trauma and healing by describing what I call trauma worlds, their dynamics, and how we move beyond them. The second aim is to describe the contribution that Jungian analyst Marion Woodman makes to this consciousness. Woodman frames her insights in mythopoetic language, so we don't normally think of her as contributing to the understanding of trauma. However, in both Woodman's writing and in the body-soul rhythms programs, which she co-created with Mary Hamilton and Ann Skinner, Woodman was working with trauma long before we had today's more explicit understanding. So now here, Daniela is doing an incredible job of articulating what I was trying to say as well. I think there is so much an incredible wealth of trauma recovery material in the words of depth psychologists, particularly that of Marion Woodman, who was doing trauma work, doing somatic stuff before it was even being called that. So there's this wealth of knowledge here that's untapped wisdom, in my opinion, for trauma recovery, and also clearly the opinion of the author of this text and this uh, lecture. So we should be checking this out. And if you have found that nothing is really quite clicking for you, particularly if you're a woman, Marion Woodman's work is going to be groundbreaking for you. You are going to feel seen and heard, particularly if you struggled with body image, particularly if you've struggled with disordered eating, with perfectionism, with running yourself down to the bone in terms of physically and just metaphorically overwork, you will feel seen, heard, and validated by the work of Marion Woodman. Let's keep reading. Popular culture tends to define trauma in terms of the experiences suffered. So a person is a survivor of sexual abuse or a victim of neglect. This focus on outer events is useful when trying to prevent future trauma from happening, but when working to heal existing trauma, it's better to stick to the dictionary. The dictionary defines trauma as a wound, shock, or injury. Thus, directing our focus onto the inner impact made by negative experiences. This is key. I love what she's saying here about how oftentimes when we're talking about trauma, we're talking about it, again, very cerebrally. I was raped. I'm a victim of sexual abuse. I'm a victim of incest at the hands of my father, for example. These are examples, not necessarily things that happened to me. I want to make that very clear. I was sexually trafficked. I was scapegoated by my family. My sister was a victim of a school shooting. 
These are ways that I'm just speaking about this from a very mental space, but what undergirds all of these experiences? Different types of trauma. And because all of these people were raised differently, are wired differently, um, have different personalities, coping mechanisms, and complexes, different levels of intuitive sensing, everyone is going to be impacted by trauma in a very different way. And she's saying that the dictionary definition of trauma, defining it as this wound or a shock or an injury, really helps us focus where we should be focusing, which is on the inner impact. What does this do inside? She goes on to write, one reason why it's best to define trauma by its impact is that the same experience will have different effects on different people. Events that pass virtually unnoticed by one person might overwhelm another and leave debilitating emotional wounds. This is so funny because I'm reading this at the same time. I wanted, I like you all to get just fresh, natural reactions from me. I'm not studying this beforehand. I'm just doing this intuitively, I suppose. So this is the first time I'm reading this. I skimmed through this document and then I thought, oh, this has to be an episode. I can't just read this and keep it to myself. So she's saying exactly what I just said in my previous reaction is that trauma will impact everybody in a different way. The same trauma, the same thing happening, say, for example, two young girls are living in the same house and the father sexually abuses both of them. Both girls will have completely different reactions to that trauma. Their lives are not going to look the same way. Maybe one of them acts out, quote unquote. I still hate that phrase. Maybe one of them represses and goes, becomes, has a eating disorder and stays in her room and never goes out and it becomes obsessive with school and being perfect. And then maybe the other daughter sneaks out and starts drinking and partying and making fun of her other sister because she can't believe that she's not fucked up about this. Like, how could you just lock it all away? You know, these are two people living in the same house, experiencing the relatively same type of trauma, but because they are two very different individuals, they're going to react in different ways to this trauma. It's just an example, not a true story. I'm sure that this has happened before, but doesn't refer to anybody that I'm aware of. I want to also make that clear. You'll hear people talk about kids, right? Saying that they're orchid kids or dandelion kids. And by that meaning, children have different levels of resiliency and sensitivity. If you have a dandelion child, maybe they're very hardy. They can bounce back from setbacks really quickly. They're not as deeply sensitive. Um, Then maybe you have another child who feels things very deeply. It reminds me of when I was reading uh, Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. I believe this is the book that that reference is in. Love her work, by the way. Talk about a big feeling person able to articulate what it feels like to be highly sensitive. And her young daughter, um, I believe, heard something about like the polar bears dying in school. And this little girl was probably five or six and she came home and I think Glennon reports feeling like something, someone died or something. But this little girl told her mom that she was just so devastated that the polar bears were dying and she could not understand why no one was doing anything about this. Like, why are the adults not doing anything about this? And she was just beside herself sobbing. So that's just an example. Whereas maybe a few other kids in the class are just, 
they think it's sad. It's not like they're heartless children, but they move along with their day and maybe realize, well, that's really sad. And they feel something deeply and then they move forward with their day. This little girl is so debilitated by this information. And again, an example of dandelion child, orchid child, orchid, because orchids are notoriously very picky. You need to like have them in a certain level of humidity. You can't overwater them, underwater them. You have to really be attuned to their very sensitive needs as a plant where dandelions will grow anywhere, right? And sometimes even where you don't want them to be growing. So she goes on and makes another good example of this. She writes, imagine two bicyclists caught in a crosswind. One might cycle on with hardly a wobble, whereas the other might fall and break a leg. The trauma is in the broken leg, not in the crosswind. The extent to which we are derailed by an emotional experience will depend on several factors. First is the intensity of the experience. Even Olympic cyclists will struggle to stay upright in a hurricane. Second is what we, as individuals, bring to the experience. Our intrinsic sensitivity, age, previous history, and whether there is anybody to whom we can turn for support. In short, trauma occurs at the interface where negative experiences meet unique human beings. I love that so much that I'm going to read it again. Trauma occurs at the interface where negative experience meets a unique human being. When experiences trigger overwhelming pain and fear, we develop an implicit conviction that we're living in a dangerous world and that our lives are at risk. Consequently, survival systems are activated in both our unconscious minds as well as within our physical bodies, whereupon we move onto a different path to the one we would have followed had we not been traumatized. Let's unpack that in a little bit less of academic phrasing. Basically, what she's saying here is that when we experience trauma, this sets our bodies into a panicked, overactive state. Our nervous system is on high alert. And when we are living in this space, we are believing truly that we live in a dangerous world full of bad people where bad things happen and that we need to protect ourselves. And so because of this, this heightened state, this when our nervous system is activated in this danger mode, it means that that has an impact on our unconscious minds as well as our physical bodies. So we're going to make the decisions that people that are in danger would make rather than the decision that someone who is safe and okay with their body, knowing that the past is in the past and I'm no longer in danger now, I'm safe now, you're going to make a very different decision if your nervous system is in a calm, regulated state. So she continues by saying, on this pathway, we live our lives from inside a parallel biological and psychological world. It's entry into this world that defines trauma not the experiences per se. Next, we're going to be talking about hypervigilance, disconnection, and shame, and how this plays out as a part of trauma worlds. But before we dive into that, 
part of what allows me to continue making this podcast available for free for my listeners is dynamically inserted ads from my podcast host. These are like ads that you'll hear pop up on YouTube where you can skip through them and nobody picks them. They're just dropped in. The creator doesn't have a choice. It's just in. I have those. And I will also be providing some words written by me about my sponsors that I work with. I'm very picky about the sponsors that I choose to work with. I only talk about brands, products, services, experiences that I actually use and made a positive impact on me. I have turned sponsorships down. That's just the way I roll here on BFTB. So you're going to hear a quick break for some dynamically inserted ads as well as a word from my sponsors. So without further ado, let's jump into those and then we'll be right back here and continue our conversation on Trauma Worlds. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What constitutes a trauma world varies from person to person, depending on our individual experiences and unique disposition. We've already talked about this, right? You are a unique individual, wired in different ways, with different levels of resilience and sensitivity. This is just the way the world works. But there are three different dynamics that form the hub of all trauma worlds. So what she's saying is... This is all very different. We can't really shove any of this stuff into a box, but there are some things that can tie it all together that many people that live in what she describes as trauma worlds will share. And the first of these is hypervigilance. She writes, the external world is perceived through a veil of fear. We carry an embodied and implicit mistrust of other people, situations, and opportunities. It can be easy to breeze past sentences like this, but this was a really powerful statement Daniela made. And to be able to define hypervigilance that succinctly and powerfully is pretty amazing. So she's saying that when we're hypervigilant, essentially we're walking around with what she describes as a quote embodied and implicit mistrust of other people, situations and opportunities. I think we should explore these two words, embodied and implicit. What does that mean? She's obviously saying that we live in a reality where we don't trust other people, situations, places, things, whatever. But what does it mean to live 
with an embodied and implicit sense of mistrust of basically everything around you, which is what she says gives rise to this hypervigilance in people that live in trauma worlds. In the context of what Daniela is saying here, the word embodied refers to the manifestation or incorporation of hypervigilance within the physical and sensory experiences of who we are. So what's that mean? It means that we show this. Our body just reeks of mistrust. And by that, it means like you can see someone. Imagine the classical paranoid person. It's like looking around, like I call it in one of my voice notes that I recorded for my premium subscribers, I call it like paranoid golem energy. That's what it's giving. <laughs> in the least academic way possible but i think sometimes it's really helpful to explore it through this more easy to approach language because you can really imagine if i say paranoid golem energy you know exactly what the fuck i'm talking about it's that is the vibe that is when we are embodied hypervigilance to this state of paranoia because hypervigilance is not good or bad just like anything else that's another thing we all have to learn in this black and white culture we're living in is that hypervigilance is developmentally and biologically or evolutionarily speaking it can be a good thing if there is an actual threat you want to have the ability to be hypervigilant if you didn't have that you'd just be this blissed out blob and someone could just i don't know do whatever they want say whatever they want to you and you'd just be floating there in your blissed out blob land you want to be able to go into there's a threat i need to act mode but when we're hypervigilant, we are stuck in permanent paranoid golem energy. And even when we need to be soft and relaxed and open and curious to what the world has to offer us, or maybe what someone has to say or show us, if we're in golem energy, imagine how differently our life is going to unfold and the things that you'll miss because ironically in a chronically hypervigilant state which is super ironic i think i said that just now ironic chronic is that you're going to miss out on stuff because you're almost blinded by the dysfunctional level of hypervigilance which is kind of a paradox or a head fuck as i like to say so this idea of embodied mistrust in hypervigilance it implies that this state of hypervigilance is not just cognitive or emotional, but it's deeply ingrained in our body responses, affecting how we physically engage with and perceive the world. And the term suggests that the mistrust is not solely a conscious thought, but it's integrated into that person's entire being, influencing their posture, their gestures, their reactions, right? And that is you quite literally manifesting your reality in very concrete terms. That's not a new age thing. It's real. This actually does happen. We can manifest our reality with the way that we perceive and respond to the world around us. So now that we know what she means by hypervigilance as embodied mistrust, what does she mean by implicit? So when we implicitly mistrust people places things everything in our universe in this context it refers to 
the subtle, automatic, and unconscious nature of how mistrustful we are. It suggests that the fear and mistrust have become so ingrained in our psyche that we don't have any kind of explicit awareness of it. And this mistrust of everything around us, this paranoid golem energy is so intense that it operates completely beneath the surface. It influences our perceptions, our responses without even being overtly acknowledged by us. To me, it sounds a lot like demonic possession or something. And this is why there are grains of reality in some of these things that have been taken so literally by religious people from all over the theology board (laughs) is that we can be kind of possessed in a way this chronic state of hypervigilance the chronic paranoid golem energy is a bit of like a possession because you're not seeing the world accurately it's almost like you're you are being held captive by a dark force but really that dark force is just your your shadow material and if you confronted it and acknowledged it you'd see that it may transform, but it's not like you're possessed by a demon. You're possessed by a darker part of yourself. So living with hypervigilance and an embodied implicit mistrust of our external world can create a pretty challenging and anxious existence to put it incredibly mildly. It can be hell. It can make life feel like hell. That's why they say, you know, Hell is, what's that William Shakespeare quote? Let me Google it. Okay, I'm back from a quick Google. William Shakespeare said in The Tempest, hell is empty and the devils are here. And I think that really resonates with this idea that we can make hell a place on earth. It's like that 80s song, we'll make heaven a place on earth. Well, we're all making hell a place on earth (laughs) with our hypervigilant asses. So now getting back into serious mode, when we experience hypervigilance in this embodied and implicit way, we're going to find it hard to engage authentically with anyone because we're always going to perceive potential threats or dangers in various situations where they aren't there. Yeah, sometimes they will be there, but what do they say? Like a broken clock is also right two times a day. Is that right? <laughs> Me and these phrases today. It's probably wrong. Don't call, please don't come for me on that. I'm not going to stop and Google something else. When we are in a chronically heightened state, when paranoid golem energy is our baseline, we're going to be chronically stressed. When we are chronically stressed, this impacts our mental and physical well being. It's just the way it goes. That's why when you're chronically stressed, you're more likely to get sick get some kind of flu or bug or virus. And when you're in a calm state, your immune system and all these things, the processes in your body, these normal unconscious processes, circling back to what we were talking about in the beginning, they can do their thing. And your body believes and knows at its core that you feel safe because that's the thing. You're not tricking your body. You can think I'm safe, I'm safe, I'm safe all day long, but if it's a cope, (laughs) then that means 
that your body's going, yeah, I'm calling bullshit. And now I'm going to even ding you even harder because you're trying to tell me that we're all good. And I know that we're not because I can feel that we're not. So when we're in this state, this hypervigilant state, how the hell are we supposed to develop trusting relationships when we are literally thinking that everyone is out to get us? The amount of early situationships that I absolutely torpedoed because I could not help myself. If someone left their phone, if a guy left his phone, you can bet your ass I was going through it and admit it, admit it. You've done it. You've done it. You've looked at something. Maybe someone left their computer open. You're like, let me just check. Right. And I was caught. Then sometimes my conscience was so guilty. When Zaz and I first started dating, I was like three months in, he left his phone out and I went through it. And as I was doing it, I got this disgusted feeling in my stomach because I sa- I saw nothing. It's the first time that I ever, to be fair, the reason I kept doing it is because I kept catching guys cheating on me through going through their phones. And so once I did that, I just assumed everyone would do it. And turns out, I was just reaffirmed that everyone would do it because I consistently kept picking the worst possible partners. Not that they were necessarily bad people, but they were people that there were clear red flags that commitment would be a problem for them, that they were so insecure that they felt like they needed the validation and get boosted up by other people. They didn't have the ability to confront intimacy issues in their relationship head on. Instead, they sought outside And I knew that about these people, and yet I continued to try to make it work. So I didn't notice this pattern, and I kept repeating the same damn mistakes over and over again, and therefore I was constantly hypervigilant thinking if they're looking at their phone, they're texting someone else. Like You can really start turning into an absolute nutcase, and the more it happens to you and the more you repeat your patterns, it more solidifies that belief, and then you don't trust anyone. And that's how I got to the point where I was you know, after a really hard time and all my music career was completely ripped out from underneath me when I started doing sex work and by like working these underground poker rooms in LA, like really crazy shit where I saw some really dark stuff, a lot of celebrities. And then I, you know, got naturally into doing some sugar baby stuff. And when I was just a commodity and when it was so transactional and I saw the darkest aspects of the male psyche, I thought all men are bad and every fucking example that I have has proven and shown that to me. So it must be true. And that doesn't even take into consideration all the grooming I experienced. So ever since I was of an age, it happens differently for every girl, but you know when guys start looking at you and you immediately think, It's a mixture of this is so wrong, but also if you have a really poor sense of self as young girls and we're emotionally neglected, you think, oh, this is nice. And I've talked at length about those experiences in previous episodes, so I won't go into too much detail there. But long story short, up until I met Zaz, when I had just, I said, I'm going celibate, screw this. The first thing I said to Zaz when I sat down on our first date was like, so I'm bipolar and I'm also celibate. So if that freaks you out, then let's just be done now. Like such a fucking wild move. (laughs) I was not doing well at this point, but Zaz now says that that was very refreshing because we were in LA and this place is just a dumpster nightmare. I swear to God. 
when they say LA will chew you up and spit you out, it's true. I'm not saying there are also there's when you live in LA, sometimes there are some magical LA moments. I will give it that, but it's rough. And so Zaz said it was refreshing, but, and he was very intrigued and wanted to keep talking to me. And we turned out that we had a really, really good connection, but I couldn't turn off that hypervigilant mode. I didn't get any red flags. I even almost sabotaged our relationship because I told my friend Sterling, oh, he's too nice. I don't know. And that's how I almost sabotaged the first like securely attached, decent possible relationship I came across. And I'm not saying that every guy I've ever been with is a bad person. And I, I just don't think that's the case. I think that we were all various levels of unhealed and repressed and doing a dealing with a lot of unconscious stuff and it was just not the right time and it would not have led to any of us being happy long term i knew in my bones that i had a chance with that with zaz and i almost sabotaged it why because i was so hyper vigilant so fast forward to me you know three months in i compulsively go through zaz's phone i find absolutely nothing it's the first time in my entire life that I hadn't found anything when I went looking for it. And I thought, when I say this was the most innocent phone you've ever seen, just like someone who's like obsessed with all of his, everything that, what you see is what you get. The things that he would obsessively talk about, these are the things that he's obsessively looking at on his phone. And I didn't do too much looking, but I looked enough to, to know that like there's nothing to see here. And I was full of such shame and anger with myself and I knew I couldn't live with, I have such a guilty conscience. That's the thing. I used to lie a lot, but it took a toll on me because I, my conscience ate away at me. I could not lie even about small things and not feel horrible about it. But I lied a lot growing up because I lied to get attention. I lied to stay out of trouble. Um, I lied to avoid an outburst. I lied for fun like it was just like a, a reflex from my childhood but I always felt guilty so when Zaz came back I don't know where he was I sat there and I just felt like I wanted to throw up and so I blurted out I looked at your phone and I just remember he was like what and I just said I'm so sorry I thought I definitely was crying and I said I just couldn't hold that in and I want you to know that I'm never ever ever gonna do that again of course I didn't see anything and now that makes me feel even worse <laughs> and I'm sorry and I really hope that I don't regret telling you this because I'm going out on a limb and trying my best to just admit that I did something because I don't want there to be any lies between us and of course, Zaz was unnerved because who wouldn't be? It's really early on. But thankfully, he respected the fact that I came out about it. We talked about it. I explained to him why I was so, I didn't say no, even know the concept at the time, but basically where this paranoid shit came from. I wasn't very self-aware then, but I was self-aware enough to know that there had been repeated instances where I had been cheated on and betrayed and always found evidence. And I just was really scared of falling for someone. And I'd rather just get it out of the way now if I know that it's not going to be a thing. And he understood that. And I have never once ever looked at anything 
of Zaz's. I do not look at his stuff. I know his phone password. He knows mine. But we don't go into each other's things because we trust each other. And I tell this anecdote because I think it's a really good example of when paranoid golem energy or hypervigilance is going all out of whack throwing off your ability to use it in an effective way it's no longer being used in an adaptive manner it's maladaptive and it manifests your reality i.e me doing this over and over and over again with the same results until what i learned my lesson didn't mean i didn't do it again but when i did do it again i really thought about it I realized the consequences it could manifest in my reality, namely like losing me a really potentially good thing. And I chose instead to be honest and face a moment of shame. And then what I learned from that experience was Zaz didn't abandon me. He didn't leave me. He understood, even though he felt violated, which he had every right to feel that way because I betrayed his trust and I invaded his privacy. But I admitted it. We were able to have a really good conversation about it and we understood each other a lot better after that talk. And that's how healing happens in relationship. And that's why whenever people say that the only way, like you need to be single until you're healed. Well, first and foremost, there is no such thing as healed. And secondly, I believe truly that you can absolutely experience individuation and healing when you're you happen to be single it doesn't mean you have to force yourself into a relationship that's not a good thing but it doesn't mean that you have to say like i'm going to prevent myself from experiencing any kind of intimacy or even trying to put myself quote unquote out there until i am healed with an ed as if there's a finish line to this thing which there's not and there are certain phases in your personal journey where you're going to find that maybe you are stagnant and maybe you're actually finding that the universe is placing people in front of you that maybe actually feel safe and you feel like maybe they could be a friend. Maybe I want to be around them more. And you're going, no, nope, I'm not done healing yet. Well, that's again where something is pretty maladaptive and you're blocking off an ability to maybe take your healing to the next level and be able to learn in relationship because sometimes we do the best healing when we're bouncing our traumas off of others and it forces us to do the honorable thing with integrity and talk about it, admit when we fucked up and use that as a moment of growth and understanding and deepening intimacy with your partner and trusting and seeing with proof that they're still here. They're learning about my darkness and they're not leaving me. Don't deprive yourself of an opportunity for that. But at the same time, if you are not in a relationship, that's absolutely no reason to force the situation. Just keep doing you, do your thing, heal, focus on you and your journey, and trust that if you're following what you're passionate about, engaging maybe even in online communities about some of your interests and just being you and being passionate and then trust that when the time is right if you are mingling in 
different areas and things and activities that you find genuine passion in and taking the chance to put yourself out there and talk about things that you are passionate and engaged with, someone will fall into your path if that's what you want. And you're going to have to learn to be calm enough in the safe zone (laughs) to recognize those moments and see safety and stability and someone that's just fun and maybe just might seem like just a friend in the beginning see that as good and safe instead of lacking passion or boring or too nice and recognize when it's your trauma talking and that's when you really can say whoa i am being possessed by the trauma world demon right now because it kind of is that and maybe that's like a interesting way to frame it in your own mind and not identify with it as much while at the same time remembering that you're not actually demonically possessed but it sure as hell does kind of articulate itself that way in our reality on the other side now that we know what life is like for someone who is stuck in paranoid golem energy and hypervigilance what is life like for someone who doesn't carry this embodied and implicit mistrust of others, well, they're going to experience a more open and relaxed interaction with the world. They are going to approach situations with a sense of trust, which is going to allow for genuine connections and a much more balanced outlook on life. Because you're not going to think toxic positivity because that's an imbalance in itself. You're not going to think, oh, everything's great. I only see love and light. No, you're going to have a balanced outlook, an understanding of the cyclical nature of life, that suffering is part of life. There are going to be joyful moments. There are going to be bland moments, which maybe we can rebrand as peace. (laughs) And then there are going to be moments where suffering is great. And you have to know that that's cyclical. And with time, you'll understand that even when you feel like it's the worst day of your life, there will be better days again. And you'll start seeing these cycles because there's going to be a time if you push through those moments. I have many of these moments now where I feel so happy and I'm so grateful that I'm in this loving partnership. And there were times not very long ago that I was like considering not being here anymore but I felt like I was too chicken shit to actually act on it. And that, people don't often talk about how dark a place and shameful a place that is to know that you actually kind of want to kill yourself, but you're too scared to actually do it is, it makes my stomach hurt just thinking about it because I remember that. And if you haven't felt that way, you can't understand. Like, You can try, but only if you've really been to these darkest places where you think, I have fucked up my life so bad at this point and I'm watching everyone else zoom ahead and I'm that person. I'm the person who fucks it up and there's no going back and it's so dark and you really cannot see that there's going to be another good day. I remember when I first was trying, I got on my first antidepressant and I, it was those days where I couldn't even get out of bed. I spent days in bed and I was embarrassed because I had roommates and it was the darkest, darkest time. It was right after my music career flopped and I was having to do sex work and like I would just drag myself out of bed to work and then it was just like, and of course my body was saying, what the fuck are you doing? 
And I'm not saying sex work can't be legitimate work. I want everyone to do what they want to do. But if you, you know when you're doing something that you don't actually want to do. I did not want to do this. I felt like I had to. I felt like, well, if I'm just going to be objectified all the time, might as well get paid for it. That was really the energy. And also I think I wanted to like fuck men over a little bit because I was so mad at them because of all of my years and years and years of grooming and abuse and sexual assault and all of these things. And I just thought, well, this is the world. Let me just cash in. And so I was in such a dark place. I had gotten breast implants that were making me really sick. I couldn't afford to get them out. And I was on five different psych meds. I was a mess. And then smoke, like I was, my best friend was my weed pen. I just wouldn't leave my room and I'd be stoned all day. I was really underweight because I couldn't even, I was just drinking smoothies because I didn't even have the ability to cook for myself or care to. Dark, 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 dark stuff. And if you haven't been to these places, you can't understand. And for listeners like, I open up and talk about these times because I want you to understand I've been there. And the years of hypervigilance, the repressed and sometimes not repressed, just explosive anger and rage from unhealed trauma, it will destroy you. I was suffering chronic infections. My body and my mind was sick and I had an unbalanced view on life. I thought Every man was bad. I thought only bad things would happen to me. I felt like I had no true purpose. I thought I was going to do songwriting and that was taken from me. And it turned into yet another sexual, um, sexually compromising situation. Nothing actually happened, but it was an attempt and I backed away and the response was fierce of dropping me from everything. And so I just thought, I literally cannot move in this world without being objectified and sexually abused and harassed. Like, what in the fuck? I thought it was a sick joke. Like, why? Why does this happen over and over to me? Like, it's a joke. And so why, how in the fuck could I even believe in any kind of God or divine presence? Because I thought, like, how? And then slowly but surely, I started recovering and choosing to look inside and face and sit with these emotions and see how this hypervigilant attitude that I have was actually kind of creating repeated situations of this reality in a certain way. And so as I have progressed, I'm starting to see I'm not there yet, but we're talking about what does it look like when someone doesn't carry this embodied and implicit mistrust of others I'm starting to see what it would be like to approach situations with a sense of trust, to allow for genuine connections with others and really give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm starting to see what it's like to be more resilient in the face of like low moods and challenges and rejections and how by feeling it a little and then trying to quickly rebound from it after really I feel it and I let the emotions process and then I move forward. I'm not as burdened by constant hypervigilance and fear as I used to be. I'm still struggling with it deeply, but even this work, this probably three years or so of work now at this point, and that's very early on in my journey, 
very early. But what I've seen is I don't have as many physical symptoms. Like with my health, I'm healthier. I'm not on any medications anymore. Do I have some really down days? Yeah. But I'm really navigating life a lot better. I have genuine connections with people. I have a community that I've built through this work. I feel like I have a genuine purpose now. But it's taken about three years of really hard work to get to this point. When we start developing more healthy levels of trust, it makes sense that that would lead to us feeling like we're living a more fulfilling and meaningful experience of our reality. So in this environment, right, the conditions created by that allow us to have securely attached positive relationships and a greater sense of well-being in its truest meaning, right? Our body, our mind, our spirit, we feel connected to things. We are grounded. We are thriving. I think this document is giving us so much juicy discussion topic fodder (laughs) that we're going to break this into a multi-episode series exploring this concept of the trauma worlds. And so on the next episode, we're going to pick back up on the second of the three dynamics that Daniela says form the hub of trauma worlds, and that is disconnection. To give you a taster, this is what she writes about disconnection. Parts of ourselves become exiled. We're distanced from our emotions, our bodies, and aspects of our personalities. How many of us can relate to that? This dissociative, disconnected quality, almost like you're watching your life happen to you rather than having an active part in it. So that's where we're going to be picking up next episode. But since we've been diving into the world of depth psychology and one of my sponsors is Young Platform. The reason why I'm partnering with Young Platform is because I reached out to them after taking an active imagination course by Dr. Ken James. And I'm actually now doing their Jungian tarot reading certificate program as well. I love everything that I took part in from Young Platform so much that I reached out to them and asked if they'd like to collaborate in some kind of affiliate program set up because I would love to shout out about their amazing courses. So if that's something you want to check out, there's tons of information about them online. They have some of the world's best Jungian analysts giving lectures and courses on their platform from Even one of our previous Back from the Borderline guests, Dr. James Hollis, has courses and lectures on there as well. So if you want to start diving into depth psychology and actually learning from some of these people, you can do that. So just go ahead and go to backfromtheborderline.com and then you'll be clicking in there and going to my link tree. And when you see these lists of links, you'll see a button for the Young Platform courses. And that specific link will take you to my partnership area of their site. And you will be able to get 10% with the code MOLLY10 off of your first order. Also on my link tree is another affiliate link for my other sponsor, Pure Spectrum CBD. 
it goes without saying that I have had a great experience with CBD, but if you are taking certain medications, you need to consult your doctor before you use it and obviously use your discretion. For me, CBD has been really, really helpful, especially around my period because I struggle with back pain, I struggle with insomnia, and one of the Back From the Borderline listeners actually works for Pure Spectrum CBD, an amazing small business run out of Evergreen, Colorado, and they've worked with some really impressive sporting bodies and really prioritize quality over quantity. And after testing out a couple of their products, one of them is their nighttime CBN, CBD tincture, which is really, really helping me with insomnia around my period. I basically take it about an hour before bed and it helps me stay asleep. Instead of feeling so fidgety, I get really hot and move around and it's helped. So that link is there too. You'll also get a discount off your first order. So go ahead, check it out. Two amazing sponsors, two companies I'm really, really proud to be affiliated with. But if you would like ad-free episodes of the Back from the Borderline podcast, as well as hundreds of hours of bonus content, as well as access to my private Discord community where you can connect with other Back from the Borderline listeners, you could sign up for a Patreon membership. You won't have to hear ads and you get all those other amazing, juicy goodies. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash back from the borderline, but the link to become a premium submarine is also in my link tree and my website. And if you just aren't quite ready to do that, you know, you can also really help me by rating and reviewing the podcast really helps sharing an episode with someone that you love is probably my favorite thing anyone could do except signing up for Patreon. That's that really helps me out. But I mean, sharing my work is everything because I really want to get this message about this stuff out there. So if you have someone that you know that could really benefit from what we're talking about here, share it. It really helps. Take it in and talk about it with your therapist. I have lots of listeners that do that. They hear things that are interesting to them. They're working with a great therapist that they love and they take that concept in and they work on it. So doing that really means the world to me. You can also join the free community on Instagram and I'm there at Back From The Borderline and I'm sharing memes pretty much every day. I love memes. It is a passion of mine, always has been, and it brings me such great pleasure that I can (laughs) continue my meme curation obsession in a way that also promotes the podcast. So join in on the fun there, but that's enough self-promotion for me. I can't wait to see you right back here next week where we will continue part two of our new series, Trauma Worlds, and we will pick right back up where we left off and start exploring the impact of disconnection. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.